Welcome to the Rising Laterally podcast. Each episode, you will learn something fascinating so you can bring big ideas to your small talk. Your growth is our growth. Listening to these episodes, subscribing to our weekly newsletter, engaging our posts on social media, and sharing our show with your friends and family is deeply appreciated as we work hard to expand this platform. You can also visit our page at buymeacoffee.com to contribute what you think the show is worth. To the folks who are taking this step, we can't thank you enough. Look for the link in our show notes for more details about how you can support and follow us. And now, please enjoy this episode. Here's a piece of news that I wanted to bring to the surface for you. The world's biggest carbon removal plant is operating now. And it's removing carbon dioxide from the air, which is really cool. I actually think it's really cool because it's something that Lawrence Krauss talked to us about back in March when he joined us to talk about his new book, The Physics of Climate Change. And here we are. It's actually happening. Um, So here's the quick scoop. Um, There's a geothermal plant that's powering all of this, but it's called the Orca Carbon Capture Plant, and it's in Iceland. And it started sucking carbon dioxide out of the air on September 9th of this year, 2021. And the full operation actually extracts CO2 from the air and turns it into rock. So I saw this in The Economist. I don't even know if people still read The Economist. The only reason I realized I still had uh, access to it was because I saw a recurring credit card charge. I was like, oh, I should probably check this out. So I started reading The Economist recently because of that. But anyway, uh, as the story goes, There's a company called Climeworks, and it has developed chemical filters which snag CO2 when air bases flow through them. And when it's heated, they release the CO2 again, which generates a stream of gas that's then handed to another firm called CarbFix. CarbFix pipes the gas to nearby wells, mixes it with water, and pumps the resulting carbonated water into the bedrock. The thing is this, though, in Iceland, the bedrock consists almost entirely of volcanic basalts, which contains minerals that react with carbon dioxide to form calcium carbonate, which is the main ingredient in limestone. So that's Mm. the process going from extracting CO2 out of the air and turning it into rock in Iceland specifically. So I think it's important because it's clearly a step in the right direction. It's one solution towards solving for the climate crisis, even though full scale of this has not been reached um, and we're not at that point. But it's also as a way for corporations to offset a portion of their emissions. So companies like Microsoft are lining up to be clients and there are about 8,000 private individuals who want to be clients as well. Um, It's also important because this is Uh, part of a new and growing direct air capture industry. Uh, So the world is emitting about 43 billion tons of CO2 every year. It's an absurd amount, 43 billion tons every year. And now there's 15 direct air capture plants that are operating worldwide. They're capturing about 9,000 tons uh, per year out of the air. I think this machine that I'm talking about right now might make it the 16th operating one, and it is uh, designed to capture an additional 4,000 tons per year. But, you know, you think about it, considering how nations across the globe are trying to reduce their carbon footprints, you could forecast 
that this direct air capture industry might become a thriving industry because of demand for technology, demand for equipment, and demand for better results. Because let's face it, 13,000 tons per year is really a great step in the right direction. But as I mentioned, we're, we're putting out 43 billion every year. So it's pretty small right now. Um, but I think it's just one of those things that means it's going to grow in the future. And so now that you know that this exists, you can talk about it. Uh, I think it will resonate. Imagine you're talking about ESG, whether it's with clients or because it's one of your own preferences uh, that could shape the conversation. You know, think about it from a portfolio construction perspective. You might find different companies that are different, you know, handling different parts of the supply chain, this specific supply chain. And if you look deep enough, maybe you can find, you know, potential investment opportunities there as well. So that's important there. Uh, Obviously, people are talking about green initiatives. So now this is just an extra data point to add to that conversation. And if you're already Googling, direct air capture industry, you're probably discovering this brand new portal and you might end up being a part of it. Maybe there's something interesting there. So the feeling that I had when I read this, other than the fact that we continue to talk about stuff that feels futuristic and relevant, is actually one of empowerment. I felt a spark of creativity and innovation. It was flowing through me. You know, I read the article, I I realized that there's like these people that are working on this project and they're trying to solve a big problem. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact it was probably a roller coaster ride for them. You know, I imagine the trials and errors that they went through. And I, I imagine how crazy it must have sounded to be like, we're going to pull CO2 out of the air and we're going to pipe it into wells. This it's going to get mixed with water and then it's going to be pushed into a bedrock and then yeah. it's just going to be stone. So I think it's fascinating. And it's just proof that there is a creator inside of us. And this is a reminder that that little creator needs a little love and attention and that we were born for this. We were born to create. We were born to imagine. We were born to love. And that's really what I got from that story. So I thought that I would share it with you. Absolutely, man. Thank you for doing that. I think I didn't really know much at all about uh, direct air capture before you told us about it. So I appreciate that. I think that's really promising. And if that number can continue to climb from 13,000 to 100,000 to a million, I'm sure they're going to be more innovative and more efficient as time goes on. And for that to make a dent in the billions of tons we're putting out in the atmosphere, that'd be awesome. That'd be really awesome. I actually have a story as well that I read this week which was some other good news in humanity's fight against climate change. A little bit different in scope, a little bit smaller in scope, but I thought pretty inspiring as well. Italy has been doing some really interesting work in the Italian Riviera, which is the coastline between Nice and Florence. To give some context, the Mediterranean Sea is a sort of microcosm of what's happening in the rest of the world's oceans. It's a very delicate ecosystem, and scientists at this point, fear it will continue to grow hotter and more acidic as ocean temperatures rise, which can lead to more extreme weather inland, not only in Italy, but also in France, in Greece, in Spain, really that whole region uh, by way of things like tornadoes, you know, wildfires, bouts of heavy rainfall, which they've already been starting to see, especially this last year. And of course, climate change 
can be quite damaging to the habitat of marine life uh, in the Mediterranean, which I didn't realize is actually extremely diverse. You have octopuses there, whales, dolphins, seahorses, barracuda. Uh, you got a lot of wildlife there in the Mediterranean currently affected by rising temperatures and changes in the pH balance of that water. So what marine biologists in Italy, actual researchers for the Italian National Agency for New Technologies, Energy, and Sustainable Economic Development, what they're doing and what they've created there in the Santa Teresa Bay off the Italian Riviera is actually the first underwater living laboratory. So why is it a living laboratory? Because they're actually using living aquatic invertebrates known as bryozoans native to that habitat as live sensors to monitor the rising acidity in the water. And as temperature rises, so does the acidity. So by way of monitoring the acidity, they can infer rises in temperature as well. So I started looking further into this and trying to get a better understanding of these bryozoans. And I found them to be really fascinating marine life. The individual bryozoans are just these microscopic little worms. Individually, they're no more than like one twenty-fifth of an inch. But what they do is they all group together to form these much larger animals. In some cases, uh, they group together to form these large membranes. And the ones I found online look to be like over a foot long. So you imagine all these hundreds of little worm-like tiny microscopic organisms come together and they form this blob that's like a foot long. It looks like something between uh, you know, halfway between a brain and a rock. It's this big, dense, slime-filled, uh, gelatinous blob. And uh, in the case of the Byrozonans in the Italian Riviera, they actually come together to form this large sedentary shell. It looks just like a single shell, but again, it's this, a colony of hundreds and hundreds of these tiny little organisms bunched together. And what the Byrozoans do is they use the natural carbonates in the water to grow their shell. So as acidity goes up, there are less carbonates in the water, which means the growth of these biozones slows. So when the scientists monitor the growth of their shells, they're able to use these creatures as live sensors to monitor changes in the overall composition of the Mediterranean Sea. As the shells slow in their growth, it's more acidic. As the shells, uh, the, the speed of their growth increases, then there's less acidity in the water. Um, and this can be used to predict downstream effects of climate change as well, like extreme weather, for instance, if the shells are slowing at an extreme rate, then you might be able to predict tornadoes coming in that extreme weather season. So it's pretty, I think, inspiring work. And I thought it was particularly cool for a couple reasons. One, in last week's episode, we talked a lot about networks. And I think a species of microorganisms grouping together to form these much larger colonies that bear no resemblance at all to what they look like as individual specimens. I think that's an example of a pretty fascinating network. And secondly, it just makes me think about what the future of the Internet of Things might look like if we work more closely with sensors in our natural environment. You know, we've heard a lot about the power of man and machine coming together in the 21st century. And I think that's a very inspiring trend. Obviously, uh, the direct air capture machines are evidence of that. But I think maybe there might be room too for more conversation around the power of man and nature coming together. Uh, you know, these bryozoans, they first show up in the fossil record about 485 million years ago. So they, <laughs> these things are older than trees. You know, they predate mammals by about 300 million years. Now, all these millions of years later, humans 
which is kind of like the apex species on the planet, is now partnering with them uh, to try to monitor and fight climate change. I think it's just a really inspiring partnership. And I think it'd be thrilling uh, to see you know more innovations like that between man and nature going forward. That's such an awesome story about connectedness coming together. Uh, I love the idea of the future of the Internet of Things and trying to see, you know, the sensors around us. I think it's fascinating that these scientists have figured out to use these virazonins to actually figure out the acidity to figure out extreme weather. You know, when you were telling that story, I was thinking like, oh, wow, are they going to figure out, you know, the acidity and figure out how to make it? water that people can drink because we are in a situation where we're running out of water. So I wonder if there's any sort of uh, connection there. That that was just like me thinking out loud, taking the information for the first time. I think it's amazing what's going on right here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And like the man versus nature thing just coming together. It's like maybe we can learn how to use our oceans and desalinate them and turn that into drinking water here in the United States. I feel like there are some countries in Europe that do it. Um, I believe Israel is a country where a lot of their water is through desalination. Mm. And so I just feel like when I hear this story, um, one of the nodes off of an edge would maybe be like, how can we turn the ocean into drinking water? That's how I'm thinking mm. about like connecting different dots right now. Yeah. I like that a lot. Be great to see that here too in California. Cause I think, uh, drinking water and the lack of it will become a problem over the next few decades. So those kinds of connections are what are going to save us in the long run. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, moving on. I do have another story. It's a little bit longer. This one is about Chinese fishing fleets that were caught near the Galapagos islands. Uh, the headline was great wall of lights, China's sea power on Darwin's doorstep. Of course, I clicked into that. Um, it turns out <laughs> to be a fascinating story. Some of you may have already have heard of this. You know, it was delivered by the Associated Press. But uh, the AP and Univision, they accompanied a patrol boat for 18 days to observe up close for the first time the Chinese distant water fishing fleet that are on the high seas off of South America. Um, you can Google this and read it for yourself. It's pretty gripping. But a patrol was prompted Actually, last year, there was international outcry over this because apparently hundreds of Chinese vessels were discovered fishing for squid near those islands. I missed this news. I had no idea this happened. But imagine, I mean, you can clearly imagine the uproar when hundreds to maybe thousands of ships were seen around those famed islands because people were fearing the impact on the biodiversity. Um, but apparently... You know, China's kind of forced into this deployment so far out because it's actually decades of overfishing that have pushed its fleets further away from their mainland. And so, you know, you have that going and then you have the fact that this is actually an industry in China that they take pride in it the way that the U.S. used to take pride in their space program. So, you know, it's one of those things where like the wider it gets, maybe it's working in the favor in terms of messaging that is being delivered to their people. Um, right. And look, it's hard to criticize a specific country like China um, because, you know, Europe and the United States 
have also been raiding the seas for decades as well. But the sheer size of the fleet is what's causing the latest stir. And there's fear illegal fishing is going to soar because there are thousands of boats on the seas right now. Um, It's a dark story with dark sides. Of the 30 vessels the AP observed up close, 24 had a history of labor abuse accusations, past convictions for illegal fishing, or they showed signs of violating um, law. Um, 16 ships either sailed with their mandatory safety transponders turned off, they broadcast multiple electronic IDs, or they transmitted information that didn't match the listed name or location. Six ships were owned by companies accused of forced labor, including one vessel whose crew said that they had been stuck at sea for years. So this all reminded me of our conversation with Benjamin Lore last year about his book, The Secret Life of Groceries, and specifically about how modern slavery is existing in our supply chains. And in that book, we learned about how the Thai fishermen were out at sea. So people here in the States could eat shrimp cocktail. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like stories like that, that are, that are tied to this current news. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about it from the animals perspective. You know, we've talked about animal consciousness and intelligence before on the podcast. And now imagine the sound of the mechanical jiggers that are pulling the catch from the oceans. Um, think about the sounds that could be heard like hundreds of feet away. Think about the smell of the water. And as you're approaching it, you know, imagine the squids blowing their ink sacks one final time, trying to avoid their final fate. It's crazy. And this was written in the article and I was like reading it. I'm like completely gripped by this story. Um, it turns out that fishing is taking place mostly at night. Uh, Each ship is just turning on hundreds of lights as powerful as stadium lights to attract these squid. And the concentration is so intense. You can see space satellite images of them online. It looks like a little city in the middle of the ocean. Um, It's crazy. You should Google it and read more about it. The writers did a really, really good job. Uh, The point of sharing it right now is, I think, first to remind folks to be grateful for what we have and be grateful that you're not stuck at sea. Be grateful that you're not in a forced labor situation, but it's also to add to the sustainability conversation. I mean, this strikes me and probably you as some unsustainable behavior in a really unregulated market. I imagine it's incredibly difficult to do anything because how can you really distinguish between what's a legal fish and an illegal fish when you're eating it? And so how are you going to like force transparency? I feel like the fishing industry just has this really dark side to it. It's had it for decades. And especially when you think about the world is demanding a product and there's just so much forced labor that's going on behind the scenes. So again, just a reminder that like right now in at least the United States, there's some freedom to the choice you have in terms of the industry you're in or what you want to be a part of. And I think that is the message that really resonated with me. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely a darker story, but one that we need to hear. That book that we read earlier uh, last year from Benjamin Lohr definitely put a lot 
into perspective about just how lucky we are to have access to the type of work that we do, to the type of resources that we do, the type of food that we do. And sometimes it comes at a cost to others. So that gratitude, I think, can be complicated by the people that may be suffering on the other side of it. My last story here kind of connects in with that idea. I was reading this week about a dilemma that's facing many small island nations that are having to decide, as Malika Sen from the AP put it, between their livelihood and their lives. And I didn't know this, but the UN actually recognizes 38 member states as what are called small island developing states. They're grouped together that way because they face, quote, unique social, economic, and environmental challenges, end quote. Some of these islands we're probably all familiar with. It's islands like Barbados, Bahamas, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, among many others. The ecological fallout of climate change, if it continues as it has, just the rising sea levels alone, given the size of these of some of these islands, would spell disaster for many of these nations. As the president of the Maldives told the UN General Assembly last week, the difference between a temperature rise of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is a death sentence for the Maldives, uh, which I thought was a pretty apt and powerful way to put it. Uh, but the problem is... Uh, is that this block is heavily dependent on tourism, which I didn't realize is actually a massive driver of climate change. Tourism accounts for 8% of global carbon dioxide emissions alone. Just people you know, flying around the world, taking vacations, that's 8% of all of our global carbon emissions as a species. So these islands you know, have to decide at this point, do we keep trying to drive tourism, even though it will spell the end of us in the long run, or do we try to curb it, knowing that that decision would devastate our economies, which rely heavily on tourism? So they're truly caught in between a rock and a hard place there. And what really got my gears turning on this was thinking about it from the other perspective of people like us who live in the West and might one day have the opportunity to take a vacation to one of these developing island nations. I was asking myself, what if you had the choice to go see something beautiful before it was destroyed forever, but by making that choice to go see it, you knew you were in a small way contributing to its destruction? Could you really even enjoy it once you were there? I think that's an interesting ethical quandary and one that I actually encountered myself in another way in the last couple of weeks. As some listeners um, may have seen in the news, this month, the California wildfires made their ways to Sequoia National Park which is home to the largest single stem tree on the planet, General Sherman, who's now around 2,500 years old and stands 275 feet tall, probably taller than you can ever imagine if you've never seen it before. And for a while there, it looked like General Sherman and many of the other famous trees in that park might burn down. And I was following the story a couple of weeks ago thinking, Jesus, this is such a tragedy. You know, these trees are so ancient. They're so impressive. What a loss to humanity it would be if we were to lose them. And I was also thinking, like, damn, I should have gone to Sequoia National Park while I had the chance. You know, I've been in California for seven years and I never made that trip. And, you know, anyway, long story short, very, very, very fortunately, the fires didn't burn those trees down. General Sherman still stands for now. And I do still want to go to, go to, see the trees in Sequoia National Park, but now I do feel a little bit strange about it. Like, can I really enjoy the experience of seeing General Sherman knowing 
it may not be here a couple of years from now. And that I burned a few hundred miles of gas just to go feast my eyes on it. It's, I think, a strange time we're living in. And I think more and more we might be faced with these kinds of questions that complicate our sense of gratitude and our sense of you know, trying to see things before they're gone forever. It's, uh, we're all, I think, in the West, or many of us in the West are in incredibly fortunate positions, and we have so much to be grateful for. And uh, sometimes it's painful, but important to deal with the shadow of some of our behaviors as a society. Yeah, that's definitely some deep thinking. But Jay, I got to get you to go out there because I need you to do a field check for us. You need to tell me how high did the foil wrapping get around <laughs> general sherman is it like your human height high or did we get up there because on the tv screen it looks like that's like a six foot man got you know maybe yeah. you've gotten on a ladder and like wrapped it in foil but no I, I think what you're on is a really interesting point with the travel to go see something but on that way you're contributing to just um you know the the co2 release in the air the carbon footprint um, but it's just one of those examples of, again, going back to the tourism concept, great for industry, bad for people. And yeah. I think it's an example of even some of the stories we shared today, right? You had like stuff that was great for humanity, but also stuff that's bad for humanity. And so I feel like we're just constantly living in this pull and push of, what are you going to do? I mean, right. the thing is that you still have to live your life and have the events that you want to have because you're trying to make your lifespan as memorable as possible. Exactly. And, you know, if you think about your carbon footprint, I mean, you're not going to walk everywhere. Yeah. It's not feasible, <laughs> right? But if you're conscious about it, I think you could still make that balance of, I got to see enough things in real life with my own two eyes and I don't necessarily feel bad about contributing to these massive storms that are headed our way. Mm. I mean, I'm saying that in the context of being a person who hasn't experienced like the jet setter lifestyle, the world traveler lifestyle. So I'm not speaking from that perspective. I'm only speaking from someone who goes on occasional trips and I, I feel like that can continue. But if you're someone who is used to traveling the globe and all of a sudden that question is posed to you, go see your therapist. Yeah. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can sign up for the Rising Weekly newsletter sent out each week. Every Friday, we expand on the episode with insights, recommendations, and more. You can sign up at risingladderly.com. Thank you.